Let's turn in our Bibles this morning to Mark's Gospel. We're going to be in chapter 7, covering verses 1 to 23. And I titled this morning's message, Defilement Comes from Within. Father, we lift up this time, Lord, in Your Word this morning. And Father, Your Word is very clear about the condition of our heart. It's very clear that we need to have a a change of heart. And Lord, You're the only one that can truly come inside of a person and, and change them from the inside out. And Lord, I pray, Lord, that as we look at this text this morning, Lord, that we would see, Lord, that our relationship with You, that it's, it's all based on what You have done, what You're able to do, and not what we can do for You. And Father, I just pray for our church. I pray that You would touch those that are sick. Lord, I pray that You would have Your hand upon each one of us today. Pour out Your Spirit upon us. And we thank You for it in Jesus' name. Amen. We um, finished chapter 6 last week with Jesus performing one of His more spectacular miracles. It was the feeding of the 5,000. And actually that 5,000 was probably more like 15,000 people. Pretty spectacular miracle, and it's actually recorded in all four Gospels. And then we saw how Jesus did another miracle as He went walking out onto the Sea of Galilee on water. And He came out to His disciples that were there in the middle of the sea. I think that's pretty spectacular. We closed the chapter last week in verses 53-56 to where Mark gives us a perspective of the impact and how far-reaching Jesus' healing ministry was. I've been sharing with you that the teaching ministry, the healing ministry, the demon-possessed people that were set free, the sins of a forgiven man were forgiven. The young girl who was raised to life again. And Jesus calmed the sea. Remember when He he came out and was just... came out to His disciples and He calmed the wind and the sea. He demonstrated through all of these miracles, and we're going to continue to see that, that He was demonstrating His power and His authority to His own people as well as to the whole world. He had the authority and the power over sickness. He had that power and authority over the demonic world. He had the power and the authority to forgive a person's sins, to perform miracles, and and even to defy the laws of nature. His power and authority was being demonstrated in everything that He did. And why wouldn't He? Because look who He is. He's the Son of God. He's God manifested in the flesh. 
He's the Alpha, the Omega, the beginning and the end. He's the creator of the heavens and the earth. The God who is able that nothing is too hard for God. He's also the light and the redeemer that came into this world to save mankind. Pretty incredible God we serve. My prayer is that each one of us here this morning knows Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. We looked uh, last week at these verses at the end of chapter 6. When Jesus crossed over, it says that they, they came to the, uh, to the land of Gennesaret and anchored there. And when they had come out of the boat, immediately we're told that the people recognized Jesus. They ran through the whole surrounding region and they began to carry about on beds those who were sick to every place where they heard that Jesus was. And wherever He entered, into villages, cities, or the country, they laid the sick in the marketplaces and they begged Jesus that He might just touch the hem of His garment. And as many as touched Him, they were made well. Pretty powerful. Pretty amazing and pretty... Uh, pretty powerful to witness those things. And now Mark records in this next chapter something that might not be as exciting as all the miracles that we read in the previous chapter, but it was a necessary time for our Lord. He, he needed to impart some truth, some teaching now. And the Gospel of Mark doesn't actually, like the other Gospels, have a whole lot of teaching in it. He shared some parables, but most of the Gospel of Mark has to do with what Jesus did. Not so much what He was teaching the people. But here, in this chapter, it actually tells us of, an, of a time here now where Jesus felt compelled to want to share with the multitude something that was of great importance. Jesus' fame and His popularity had grown exceedingly. And even King Herod himself was, back in chapter 6, he was hearing about the miracles of Jesus. And he even thought that it was a resurrected John the Baptist. That's all he could put two and two together. It must be the one that I had beheaded. He's come back from the grave. These miracles that are being performed were being sounded throughout all of Israel. The religious leaders that were there in Jerusalem, they're also referred to as the Jewish council, uh, consisted of the, the high priest and the scribes and the Pharisees. The Sadducees were all there in Jerusalem. They were in that, that place that was... Uh, the, really, the, the home base for all of Judaism was there in Jerusalem. And Jesus' popularity was growing. And as His popularity grew, this Jewish council, these religious men we might call them, became more and more concerned and threatened over Jesus. It's amazing what a man will do to hold on to his power, 
to hold on to the, the things that uh, these men were in places of power and authority in the eyes of the people. And here's Jesus coming on the scene doing things greater than they could ever do. And they were threatened by it. Remember back in Mark 2.6, we're told that some of the scribes that had come to Capernaum, that they were sitting there and they were reasoning in their hearts. These were the religious leaders that had made their way up to Capernaum to observe and to watch what Jesus had been doing. In chapter 2, verse 16, we're told, when the scribes and the Pharisees saw Jesus eating with the tax collectors and sinners, they said to His disciples, how is it that He eats and drinks with tax collectors and sinners? How'd you like to have a pastor be like that with you? A spiritual leader be like that with you? Referring to, yeah, how is it that he eats with the tax collectors and the sinners? We have any sinners here this morning? I mean, this is what religion will do. In Mark 3, 6, the Pharisees were told they went forth and they immediately took counsel with the Herodians against Jesus, how they might destroy Him. In Mark 3.22, the scribes who came down from Jerusalem said, He has Beelzebub, a name that was attributed to Satan. And by the ruler of the demons, he casts out demons. That's what the scribes were saying of Jesus and His miracles. In chapter 7, we look at this morning, and as I said, an important chapter because the people, as well as Jesus' disciples, they needed to know about the hypocrisy of these religious leaders. They needed to, to see how they were really trying to trap Jesus in, a, in, a, in an area that Jesus knew was damaging to the people. It was truths that they were trying to teach the people and put upon the people that would be damaging to them. There's a lot of churches that do that today. There's a lot of religious leaders that are taking people off on a course and taking them off in directions and teaching things to them that are untrue and non-biblical. And Jesus is concerned for those things. Today, if you had a person in the church that was a, we call a church member, and that person rarely missed Sunday morning. He rarely missed a midweek service. He was at all the gatherings that the church hosted. He would have been a noteworthy person within that church. If that same person tithed 10% of his income and he gave offerings in addition to that and he, he served the church weekly in different capacities. If he was an elder in the church, if he had great knowledge of the Bible and he was a, a student at memorizing it, he was theologically sound and he held all the major tenets of the Christian faith. 
He was a family man, a loving husband. He did not drink nor use profanity. Was someone who was at all the prayer meetings and was a model citizen in his community. And he had this zealousness for the things of God. You see, I give that description of a person within the church, but sadly said, this could be a man or a woman that is on their way to hell. Does that even sound like it's logical? Like it could be? Like there could be somebody that is living to that standard within the church, yet they're heading for hell. They don't really know Christ. We might say this is a description of a 21st century Pharisee. You see, God is not always, He's not amazed by what we put on in the way of outward things. We do these things out of our love for the Lord. But none of these things save us. None of us get a pathway, pathway into heaven or a free pass into heaven because we do those things. That's what the religious leaders of the day thought that they could do. It's what they thought pleased God and would somehow give them entrance into that kingdom someday. If you're here this morning and you're relying upon anything other than Jesus Christ and His finished work to save you, anything else, then you're missing it. If you've been a religious person your whole life, and in your heart, you've thought you've done all the right things. You've, you've done all the, the things that you believe that that's what church-going people should do. And then you heard what I just read. And you, and you say, well, I'm not sure if I know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. I've been a good churchgoer my whole life. But do you have a relationship with the living God? And I would say to you that you need to throw your hands up to all of those exterior things. And you need to ask Jesus to save you from your sin. We need to stop playing church. And there's a lot of people that play church today. I've learned that even coming to the East Coast. There's a lot of them in the West Coast too, by the way. But there's a lot of them here. Just good old religious people. Good churchgoers. Jesus, God, He wants more than that from us. These religious leaders that were in the Lord's day and that were there in Capernaum on this day, in a sense, they were more, no more than actors. Jesus called them hypocrites. And that's what the word hypocrite means. An actor. And you see, Christianity has always been based upon truth in the inward man. 
It's always been the truth that is in the heart. It's always been about sincerity and love. It's not on the externals. And the problem that man and man has and women have is that we have a heart issue. The heart issue happened at birth. We are born with a sin nature. We have a heart that in a sense it became defiled by the sheer fact that we're born with a sin nature. And then we go on in life quite often and there are people that try to live this religious life. Somehow or another they think they're fooling God and fooling other people. And all the while the Lord is looking at them as being just a hypocrite. Playing the part but not really knowing Him. That's what Jesus was up against with these religious leaders and the things that they were bringing to the people that were untrue. Remember that many of those that Jesus touched and healed, they were Jews. They were raised under the law of Moses and the tradition of the elders. It's what many of them knew. They knew these things. They practiced these things. Even Jesus' disciples themselves, they still wrestled with their roots. Learning from the various encounters and the things that Jesus put before them. They were struggling with some of the things that Jesus was saying. Because it's the things that they knew that they were raised in. It was their heritage as a Jew. And Jesus had come and He was beginning to break down these false systems, these traditions that had arisen amongst the Jews. Jesus wanted to get to the heart. He wanted to expel all the outward exterior things and get right to the the heart of the issue. Have you ever tried to witness to somebody that's a religious person? Very difficult. Very hard to tell a person that thinks they're all right and they're doing all the right moves and all the right things. Very hard to talk to them. Because in their mind, I'm doing what God wants. And that pride, that pride will keep a person out of heaven. Lord, Lord. Didn't we do this in Your name and do these wonderful works in Your name? And Jesus says, depart from Me for I never knew You. That's going to be an eye-opening day. There's a book called Mere Christianity and the author is C.S. Lewis. He writes something about the pride that's in the heart of man. He says, there is one vice of which no man in the world is free, which everyone in the world loathes when he sees it in someone else, and of which hardly any people except Christians even imagine that they are guilty themselves. I have heard people admit that they are bad-tempered or that they cannot keep their heads about girls or drink, or even that they are cowards. I do not think I have ever heard anyone who was not a Christian accuse himself of this vice. 
And at the same time, I have very seldom met anyone who was not a Christian who showed the slightest mercy to it in others. There is no fault which makes a man more unpopular, no fault which we are more unconscious of in ourselves. And the more we have it ourselves, the more we dislike it in others. The vice I'm talking of is pride or self-conceit. Pride leads to every other vice, and it is the complete anti-God state of mind. Pride is our, lar- our biggest enemy. It'll keep you out of heaven. It'll keep you from falling down at the feet of Jesus and saying, God, I'm a sinner and I need you to forgive me and to cleanse me and to make me right. That pride says I have no need of God in my life. We read in Proverbs 11.2 that when pride comes, then comes shame. But with the humble is wisdom. Proverbs 15.25, the Lord will destroy the house of the proud, but He will establish the boundary of the widow. Proverbs 16.18, pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. Proverbs 18.12, before destruction, the heart of man is haughty and before honor is humility. And then in James The New Testament, chapter 4, verse 6. But He gives more grace. Therefore, He says, God resists the proud, but He gives grace to the humble. What place do you want to be in? What place do I want to be? I want to be a a person that is broken before the Lord. One that realizes, you know what, God, I can't do anything apart from You. I need You in my life every day. I wake up just calling for You to fill me and to be with me because I can't live this day without You. Pride says, I don't need God. That's what Jesus was contending here in chapter 7 with these religious leaders. Pride-filled hearts. Now look at your Bibles at chapter 7. Jesus, in a sense, is going to be interrupted in His ministry to the people by these religious leaders of the day. These were the Pharisees and the scribes of the day. They had come there to challenge the authority of Jesus. Look at verse 1. Then the Pharisees and some of the scribes came together to Jesus, having come from Jerusalem. Now, keep in mind that that's a a little over a hundred mile journey to come. That's a long way to come. To make your way up to that area of Capernaum, Galilee, and to go seek out Jesus. Because they want to see what's going on with Him. Jerusalem, as I shared, was the headquarters for every Orthodox Jew. It was the place where this temple stood. It was the place of the great Sanhedrin or the council. We might call it the supreme court of our day. These were the religious leaders. The great Sanhedrin made up of 71 men that made up that council. 
It consisted of the high priest, the elders, the scribes, some of the sect of, the, of Judaism called the Sadducees. And by the way, the Sadducees, by name, their name means the righteous ones. And some of the sect of the Pharisees, uh, most of them, and most of them were scribes and Pharisees that were on that council. The word Pharisee means the separated ones. You have the righteous ones. You have the separated ones that were there on that council. They were the legal professionals of the day. They knew the law of God. They knew all of those things. And these are the ones that were beginning to manipulate the Word of God, add traditions to the law, and change it to make it fit their life. How would you like to have a group coming after you, the righteous ones and the separated ones? That just speaks of their religiosity. Verse 2 says, says when, they, when they saw some of His disciples eating bread with defiled, that is, with unwashed hands, they found fault. And they would, because that's why they came. That's why they made the, the hundred mile trek. To go see if they could find fault with Jesus and His disciples. That's all it took for them to, so to speak, get them. They saw them ready to eat their meal. Ready to break bread with unwashed hands. That's all it took. Mark goes on in verses 3 and 4, and he gives some insight into how a, a Jew was instructed to live and to maintain his purity before God. By the way, none of this had anything to do with hygiene. None of this had to do with anything about just like we, you know, you wash your hands, kids, before you eat. It didn't have anything to do with that. It had to do with defilement. It had to do with ritual purity. It was things they were instructed in to do before they would actually partake of a meal. And here they are coming all this way, and they find this way that they think they can trap. Jesus and the disciples. You have unwashed hands. And that's the fault that they found. For the Pharisees, verse 3, and all the Jews, or at least the ones that were holding to this tradition anyway, let me note that, did not eat unless they washed their hands in a special way. Holding the tradition of the elders... When they came from the marketplace, they did not eat unless they washed. And there are many other things which they had received and hold, like the washing of cups, pitchers, copper vessels, and couches, which were tables. This washing of the hands in a special way as it's put here. It was never intended for all the Jews to keep the practice of washing of hands. 
You can read about it in, in Leviticus. You can read about it in, in with the, the priest and the, the, the uh, washing lavern bef uh, before the priest would go into the temple. They would wash their hands. They would wash their feet. But it was never intended for the general people to, to fall under this thing of this tradition of hand washing before they would partake of a meal. We know that a lot of these things came along in Jewish history. They evolved, if you want to say. And that's what traditions do, don't they? They evolve and they, they get expanded and they, they grow into bigger things. And that's what the Jews did with all of their traditions. The washing of hands was a very detailed process. Hands could be defiled from foods that they may have touched when they were out walking about, out in the marketplace, whatever. Foods that had been touched by a Gentile. Get your head around that. Just touching some food that maybe was handled by a Gentile would defile your hands. Or any vessel used that had been touched by a Gentile was defiled. Certain animals were unclean. If you touch somebody that was dead, unclean. A leper was unclean. A woman after childbirth was unclean. You can go through the list. Look at uh, Leviticus chapters 11 to 15. If you want to just get bogged down with detail, you'll see all the list of the things that were unclean. And they are in God's Word. And it is part of God's Word. And there was an uncleanliness at the people, but these were the things that these Pharisees and these scribes were imposing upon the people that they must practice these things. When a person was to wash their hands before they ate, they had to free their hands of any sand, mortar, or gravel. If they were out working out in the day and out, they had to clean their hands off. The Jews had to take first their prominent hand. If you're right hand or left hand, they'd have to take their prominent hand and they'd have to wash it first with water. This water had to be stored in, inside of a, 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 a special kind of a, a, a storage jar with a lid on it. They'd put the water inside of this storage jar so no, no contaminants could get inside of the water. It was also designated water that could only be used for washing. The washing of hands. They would take that water and they would hold their, their prominent hand up and they would take that water and they would, they would pour it over their hand both sides of it until it reached their wrist. And they would do that three times. And then they would take their other hand and they would do it to that and they would pour water over it. Pour water over it until their, both their hands were drenched. Then they would take their fist and rub their fist into this palm. Fist into this palm until it was completely saturated. <coughs> Excuse me. Then they would have to take more water. They would put their fingers down. They would pour the water over and it would let the water and the defiled water run off the tips of their fingers. They would do it on the other hand and then they were clean and now we could eat. 
How would you like to do that? How would you like to be instructed to do that? And some of them were instructed to even do it in between, and some of them practiced it even in between the courses of the meal. Do you see how ugly these things can be? God never intended to bog man down with rules and regulations and all these kinds of things. But it's something of the flesh and pride that leans towards it, that wants it, that, that, that somehow thinks that this is what God wants. Look at verse 5. Then the Pharisees and the scribes, they asked Jesus, why do your disciples not walk according to the traditions of the elders, but eat bread with unwashed hands? If anything stirred up the righteous anger of our Lord, it's when people appeared to be religious. When they were just playing the part. It was the hypocrisy of these religious leaders that Jesus hated. The ones who should have been a guide to Israel were the ones who were blinded by their religious pride. Their love for power and authority themselves. God hates religious pride. Remember what Jesus said to the scribes and the Pharisees in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 23, verse 25. He says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites! For you make clean the outside of the cup and of the platter, but within they are full of extortions and excess. Thou blind Pharisee, cleanse first that which is within the cup and the platter, that the outside of them may be clean also. You see, the process that God wants to work in man is He wants to change us from the inside out. Religion gets that backward. Religion gets all of that backward and tries to clean it up and make it look good on the exterior. But the inside of the cup is dirty. God says, I want to come in and I want to start in your heart and I want to clean your heart so that the outward exterior can change. Jesus answered these Pharisees and scribes in verse 6. He answered and He, and he said to them, if you have a, a pen and something to write with, you might want to just underline certain things in your Bible. It's okay to mark in your Bible, by the way. Just mark it up. It'll help you remember when you see things. Notice that the rest of this, if you have a red letter edition Bible, this is Jesus' words now speaking going forward. Look what he says uh, to these religious men. Well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites. As it is written... And here Jesus now begins to quote from one of the greatest prophets of Judaism, Isaiah the prophet. 
he quotes to them Isaiah 29, verse 13. And, and by the way, this prophecy that was given by Isaiah was over 700 years earlier when he was prophesying it to the southern kingdom of Judah. And look what he says to these religious leaders. These, this people honor me with their lips, but their heart, that's the issue, but their heart is far from me. And in vain they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. That got right to the point. Here's Jesus now over 700 years later using that same prophecy that was given to His people back then. Speaking now to the religious leaders of His day. That you honor Me with your lips, but your heart is far from Me. In vain you worship Me. Just think of somebody that just worships God in their own way their whole life. And they come to find out it was in vain. God didn't even accept it. God didn't even receive it. What a waste of a person's life. Teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. That's something worth underlining. Teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Jesus, right out of the gate, He got right to the heart of this, their religious pride. He quotes to them a prophet that they would have respected. The prophet Isaiah. And you know what? By the way, nothing's changed. The, the same things happen today in church today. With Christians today. There are Christians that come and they fill church buildings. They sing with their lips. They do all these things on the exterior, but their hearts are far from Him. They're playing the role. They're playing the hypocrite. Jesus first accuses them of hypocrisy about really just giving lip service to God. But then He says, but your heart is far from Me. The heart. Your heart. My heart. It consists of more than what you just feel pumping in your chest. Hopefully it's still pumping right now. <coughs> Excuse me. I've got to turn this off when I'm... It's more than what's here in your chest. That pumping organ. It actually, in the Jews, they would have understood it this way. The heart is the center of your being. When the Bible speaks about your heart, it's speaking of what makes you up as a human being. Your emotion. Your intellect. Your will. All of that is brought out in your heart. That's why God wants to deal with the heart of man. So it will affect the outward actions. Jesus said in Matthew 5.8 in the Sermon on the Mount, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. 
Or we could say it this way, blessed are the undivided in heart, for they shall see God. You see, a pure heart is an undivided heart. It's giving God our whole heart. Not half of a heart, but our whole heart. Everything within us. Blessed is the pure in heart, the undivided in heart, for they shall see God. And then Jesus begins to accuse them of substituting man-made rules and regulations and commandments of men instead of the commandments of God. Verse 7, And in vain they worship Me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. They were teaching the people as doctrine just human rules. Human regulations. Have you ever been to a church like that? Is that in the Bible? You know, do you find that in the Bible? What you're asking me to do and not do? These things that you're imposing upon? Where'd that come from? Where, you know, and there's a lot. There's a lot that's out there. Man made imposed rules upon the people that what it does puts them in bondage, puts them into legalism, puts them into a state that is not full of joy. I hope you know that if you know Christ as your Lord and Savior, you're free. That doesn't mean free to sin. That means you have freedom in Christ to say no to sin. You have the ability to walk. Unlike before you knew Christ, you can walk now pleasing God. Verse 8, for laying aside the commandment of God, he says to these religious leaders, notice they lay aside the commandment of God. You hold the tradition of men. Which one's better? The commandment of God or the, the tradition of men? The washing of pitchers and cups and the many other things that you do. Jesus knew where all this was going to lead. He knew the religious hypocrisy and pride that was standing in front of them. He knew that it was going to lead people into bondage. Those Jews that were following the traditions of men. He knew that it would keep them from having a true relationship with Jesus Christ. And just think of how many people today get trapped into the various religions of this world and the various things that do the same. And it ends up being all in vain. The legalism that has been in the church forever and is there today that has turned people away from God. Put people in religious bondage. So how did they get there? How did these, quote, men of God, the religious leaders of Israel, how did they get there? How come they've turned out like this? 
to be able to understand a little bit of their thinking, we need to go back about 1,400 years. We need to go back before Christ 1,400 years to the time where the nation of Israel was given the Ten Commandments. They were given the first five books of the Bible called the Torah or the Law or the Pentateuch. It's what the nation of Israel had. And we know that when those Jews who were brought out of the land of Egypt, that those Ten Commandments were given to Moses on Mount Sinai. It was written in stone, wasn't it? And then God gave a lot of oral commands and a lot of oral instructions also to Moses on that mountain that he in turn passed on to the elders and to Joshua and others after him. And it was during that time, during the wilderness, that Moses would have written those five books, those first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. That the Pentateuch would have been written by Moses during that period of time. But think about 1,400 years and what can transpire. When you are having a lot of the words of God that are orally being spoken and passed down, there was a lot of discussions that went on, interpretations that happened, debating that happened amongst people about the interpretations of the law. And we know that by the 4th and 5th century before Christ, four to 500 years before Christ, there came into the scene these legal experts that we call the scribes. The scribes were the ones that could interpret the law. They could make a, a, a copy of the law. And they were trained in that. And they were the ones that really the enemy used in a lot of ways to bring about a lot of the traditions that came down through the law. They began to add to the law of God the traditions of man. One person wrote concerning the dangers of the Pharisaic laws, the Pharisees had developed a system of 613 laws. 365 of them were negative commands, and 248 were positive laws. By the time Christ came, it had produced a heartless, cold, and arrogant brand of righteousness. As such, it contained at least ten tragic flaws. And here they are. The laws continually needed to be Invented for new situations. That's where they started going wrong. Getting away from what God had given them in the book. And beginning to alter them and, and change them so it fit certain situations in life for today. They also had accountability to God issues and they replaced it with more accountability to men. It reduced a person's ability to personally discern 
things because they were the hierarchy. They were the ones that were bringing these things to the people. It created a judgmental spirit within them. The Pharisees confused personal preferences with divine law. It produced inconsistencies in the things that God had given to His people. It created a false standard of righteousness that many of them were leaning upon. It became a burden to the Jews. It was strictly external. And it was rejected by Christ. You see, you can't take God and you can't add something to God's book. You can't take away from it. You can't add to it. And you can read the various warnings for those who would and those who have. We also had, in the first century before Christ, there were two prominent religious leaders of the day. One was the house of Hillel. And this man lived from 110 B.C. to 10 A.D. And like Moses, he lived 120 years. He was a very respected Jewish scholar of the day, a rabbi. And he started a school, the school of Hillel. He was recognized as the highest authority among the Pharisees. His grandson was also the most respected and noted teacher of the day. His name was Gamaliel, the one that the Apostle Paul was taught under. And then there was the house of Shemei, who lived from 50 B.C. to 30 A.D. And he also was a prominent Jewish scholar of the day. And both Hillel and Shemei, they started these two schools which created vigorous debates over the law. And these two, and through all of this, they began to add to the law. They began to add various thoughts and intentions. It was actually Shimei who, and also Hillel, that were both contemporaries of each other that took the oversight of the Sanhedrin. Remember the 71 men there back in Jerusalem? These men were very influential in the, in the doctrines of Judaism, in the law, in the interpretation of the law. It was really, in a sense, out of the hands of the people. It was put into the, these schools that were dictating, really, the, the meaning of these things. Adding to it, taking away from it, altering it. And out of that, you have Hillel and Shimei that wanted also to bring about this required ritual of hand washing. They wanted the Jewish people to emulate really the same thing that the priests did. And as Jewish priests, they were to eat, have their wash before eating to consecrate the food. They wanted the people to practice the same. They instituted it. It was something that didn't come from God. It came from them. And they began to mandate it and impose it upon the people. Jesus went on to say in verse 9, He said to them, all too well, 
you reject the commandment of God that you may keep your tradition. You lay it aside in verse 8. He said, you lay aside the commandment of God to hold the traditions of men. Looking ahead at verse 13, you make the, you're making the Word of God of no effect through your tradition which you have handed down. You see, Jesus is nailing them on this. These traditions that they're wanting to impose upon the people right there. Why are your disciples not washing before they eat? Jesus, in a sense, is saying to these religious leaders, you've done an excellent job of completely nullifying the commandment of God in order to observe your traditions. Verse 10, For Moses said, Honor your father and your mother, and he who curses father or mother, let him be put to death. That's what the law read. But then look at verse 11. Whenever you say, but you say, always sit up and take notice. The law says this, but you say, and, and people do that all the time. Well, God's Word says this, but you say, always sit up and take, it's a warning sign, but you say, you see, we don't make God's Word be what we want it to be. We don't change it to make it fit what I want it to fit. What it says is what it says. And what it is, it is. There's no Scripture of any man's private interpretation. Holy men of God were moved on by the Holy Spirit. And God breathed into them the very truths from His own mouth. It was God breathed. So we should never be one that we come up with our own interpretations. These man-made traditions became a, a way that would benefit them. It gave them this authority and this power, really, in a sense, with the people. We're the religious leaders. We're, we're the ones. And remember when the people were amazed at how with what great authority Jesus taught? You don't, you don't teach like the scribes do. There's something about you, Jesus, and the way you teach and how you teach and what you say. They even acknowledged something set Him apart. They didn't like that. When he told them about honoring father and mother, he did that to bring out another thing that they were doing. In verse 11, he says, But you say, if a man says to his father or mother, whatever profit you may have received from me is Corban. Is Corban. That is a gift to God. Then you no longer let him do anything for his father or mother. Making the Word of God, look what it says, of no effect through your tradition, which you have handed down, and many such things you do. They, in a sense, came up with a loophole. They could say this word Corbin. They could attach, 
excuse me, they could attach it to their material things that they had, to their money, to the things that they had. And they could, they could say that this is Corbin. In other words, I have committed all of my belongings and all of my money and all of my things to God. And by that, it releases me of the obligation that I have even to my mother and father. Now, if you were to take that into other transactions and principles, do you see the loophole that they're trying to build? And what Jesus is calling them out on here, the law reads this, and you have changed it and made the Word of God of no effect through your tradition by making and coming up with this this whole thing of Corbin. Man-made traditions. Unholy loopholes is what they did. And there were many. The list goes on and on of the traditions that they, they built up. It went like this. Our money and our possessions, they all belong to God. And if the person wanted to dedicate all of his money and all of his property to God, then he would declare that all that he had was Corban, and thus relieving himself of all obligation. I tried that with my mom and dad. It didn't work. But the problem with this tradition then caused the person to actually be violating the written word of God. You say, how, you know, well, I don't have, I just, you know, I pronounce Corbin. You, you just violated the very, by, by not taking care of what the commandment said to honor your mother and father. The problem with tradition and the traditions of men is that none of them please God. You see, what we practice as a church, what we do in this place, if, if we start practicing and doing something that we call tradition, and it doesn't line up with the Word of God, you're okay to come up to me and go, where's that in the Bible? Never, you know, people are doing some, I've never seen that before. And there's can be different styles of things, so don't get me wrong, but I'm talking about things that would be other than what we find in Scripture. Everything we practice and do in this church, I need to be able to find it in the Word of God. After his dialogue with these scribes of the Pharisees, then he calls the multitude to himself in verse 14. When he had called the multitude to himself, he said to them, Hear me, everyone, and understand. And so now Jesus is going to get to the heart of what real defilement is. He says, the scribes and the Pharisees, they put a lot of false confidence in the things that they ate. Things that were considered clean, and things that were considered unclean. That's how they all lived as Jews. 
the clean and the unclean. They put a lot of stock in that. Jesus simply makes the point to the crowd in verse 15 and 16. He says, there is nothing that enters a man from the outside. Look at this. There is nothing that enters a man from the outside which can defile him. But the things which come out of him, those are the things that defile a man. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. Now how did that sound in the ears of these Jews, this multitude, that had these scribes and Pharisees come up and trying to call Jesus out and the disciples about washing their hands in the ritual purity that they were supposed to perform before they would eat. And here's Jesus now taking it to the step of what is it that really defiles a person. Well, these Pharisees, they held to every dietary, all these various things, and Jesus is telling them, it's not what enters in through your mouth that defiles you. The things that you eat, it's the things that come out of you that defile you. Jesus goes on and he leaves it with that, with the multitude. And, he, and then we're told that he entered into a house in verse 17, away from the crowd. His disciples asked him concerning the parable. You see the confusion that was going on, the, the struggle that was going on in the, his own disciples right now over the words that Jesus just spoke? Jesus knew that. Remember, he's teaching the multitudes, but he's also teaching his disciples. They're all struggling with these areas between the law, tradition, and now these new teachings of Jesus. He says to them in verse 18, Are you thus without understanding also? Do you not perceive that whatever enters a man from the outside cannot defile him? Because it does not enter his heart, that's key, but his stomach, and is eliminated, thus purifying all foods. And he said, what comes out of a man, that defiles a man. People get all hung up on what's going in instead of being more concerned about what's coming out. Jesus says it's what comes out that is the defiler. Verse 21, For from within, out of the heart of men, proceeds what? Evil thoughts. Anybody know that? Adulteries, fornications, Murders, thefts, covetousness, wickedness, deceit, lewdness, an evil eye, blaspheme, pride, foolishness. Anyone ever experience any of those things? I mean, yeah, I mean, that's what comes out from within. All of these are evil things that come from within 
and they defile a man. As Christians, we need to test teaching. Test the teacher. How do you test me? How do you test the things that I'm saying to you? The only way that you can truly test me is to know your word. Get into the word of God. Follow along with me when I'm teaching it. Ask the Holy Spirit to show you if the things that are being said are accurate to the word of God. Test the teacher. (coughs) Nothing wrong with that. We need to obey the things that we find in the Word of God. When God shows you something, obey it. Believe it. Obey it. And then reject all the man-made stuff that's out there. Where's that in the Bible? you You don't have to get caught up. God has given us in this book, 66 books, everything that we need for life and godliness in this life. He's told us the beginning, He's told us the end. Everything that we need is right there. It's why I take the time to teach the Word of God to you in the fashion that I do so that you as a people of God would know the Word of God and know it well. And then when the false comes your way, you're going to pick it off like, that's not right. And you find any good Bible teaching church, you're going to find people that are not going to get tripped up. It's going to be hard to trip them up because they know their Word. I say that We should always be ready to say, what does the Word of God say? What does the Word of God say? Let that be something that rolls off your lips when you listen to something on TV, some preacher. When you read some book, Christian book. What's the Word of God say? And look to that and let that be the judge of everything outside of that. I want to close with a verse out of 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9. Apostle Paul wrote this. He says, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. Sounds pretty clear. And then it says in verse 11 this, And such were some of you. And such were some of you. In other words, can any of us relate to that list? 
And such were some of you. But here's the difference between a child of God and somebody that has not been made right in the eyes of God. Even though we have these pasts, even though we have all these things that we're ashamed of, but you were washed, Paul says. Not this kind of washing. Not this. We've been washed by the shed blood of Jesus Christ. You've been washed. But you were sanctified. Set apart by God the day you gave your life to Him. But you were justified. You were made right in the eyes of the living God. Because His righteousness was given to you. You were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of our Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. Isn't that a wonderful verse? If you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior this morning, then you can stand upon that. That's a a truth of God's Word. You can stand on that. If you do not know for sure, if you know Christ, you're not 100% confident where you would go when you die. Got a little bit of a check mark in your mind and your heart. Where you would go. Is there any greater question than that that we would want to answer? If you believe that there's even anything beyond this life, anything to come, beyond this life? Is it a worthy question? Where are you going to go when you die? And if you don't know where you're going to go 100% sure, then you need to make sure. And you need to throw out anything that has any religiosity to it. If you haven't seen your life change since you quote, gave your life to Christ, then maybe you should question whether or not you know Him. Because God's in the business of changing people's lives. Not just making us religious churchgoers. Changing us from the inside out. Making us a new creation in Christ. The former things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Let's all stand. Father, we thank You. Lord, for this time this morning in Your Word, Lord, I pray that You would go before us. Uh, Lord, guide our steps today. Lord, fill this church with Your Holy Spirit. Use us, Lord. And let us, Lord, let us be a testimony of Your grace to this world. Let us take the truths of Your Word out to a world, Lord, that is searching for truth. And we thank You for it. In Jesus' name we pray. Bless you guys.